Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Jason Snell. Hi, Stephen. Uh, so much going on. We got a packed show today. We, we've got commercial crew coming maybe later this month. Yeah, it's the month of commercial crew. It's it's very a very busy time, um, and you know who knows. I, I next week's episode or two weeks episode, if we're very very lucky, maybe it's the astronaut draft. I don't know. Maybe uh, we keep maybe. we keep promising. One day it'll happen. <laughs> maybe if if there's just a little bit of a lull, maybe we'll get that in there. I don't know. I don't know. But I think we need to start. We have two big topics today. But before we do that, we have one small topic. But it's not just a topic. It is the the return, we haven't done one of these in a little while, of the SLS segment, Space Launch System segment, explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. SLS segment. Oh, it's good to get that out of that. Ooh, that felt good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's good news, right? We got like an uplifting story to talk about? Nope. Cool. Nope. Uh, Eric Berger at Ars Technica wrote a uh, a brutal story this past week about the SLS, uh, he enjoys these stories a lot. Because in March, he wrote a, a different one. The one in March was about how Mobile Launcher 1, which we've talked about here before, for the SLS, ended up uh, taking a decade to build and cost a billion dollars. <laughs> it's like, why? It, yeah. Why? Yeah. Um, and there there are reasons. They're not good reasons. So anyway, his his new story is about the engines, the rocket engines on the SLS. And you and I have talked about this before because this is a design decision that they made for sls to reuse stuff from the space shuttle program so Mm -hmm. like they want they're reusing the srbs from the space shuttle program uh and they they wanted to use the space shuttle main engines as the sls engines now here's the thing about those space shuttle main engines they're great engines they're the rs25s uh, people think that they're amazing. They're powerful. They're reusable because they were reused on all those space shuttles. They, are, they built 46 of them during the space shuttle program for about $40 million per engine. Their reliability rate was 99.95%. That's pretty good. It is pretty good. They, they only had one in-flight failure during uh, Challenger's STS-51F, and there were a handful of issues like right before launch that caused some aborts, but... All in all, just a rock-solid workhorse of, a, of an engine. Yeah, you can see why they chose to use them on the SLS, but the problem is the SLS is a disposable rocket. Yeah. So they're going to use reusable engines that will be just thrown away on a non-reusable rocket. And you think to yourself, well, okay, that's all right, but like, it'll be okay because by now we know how to make those engines and right. uh, we're mass-producing them and they're cheaper yeah. and they're, you know, you can be used in that way. It's the and iPhone that, SE of rocket engines yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah. And listener, that is not the case. Last week, NASA <laughs> announced it's going to build 18 more space shuttle main engines for the space launch system. It will cost about $1.79 billion or $100 million per engine, roughly. But the, wait, there's more. This is after something we talked about on an earlier show. They spent a billion dollars to pay Aerojet Rocketdyne to restart its production line and build six of them. So if you Ooh. put that all together and then divide by the total number, they're going to spend nearly 150 million dollars per engine um, 
and that's that's a lot. And if you're wondering, well, I don't know, it's a it's an engine. It's 150 million for a rocket engine. That sounds about right. It's not. It's not for that price. You could buy six Russian RD-180 engines, which are twice as powerful as the space shuttle main engine. You could buy two Atlas V rocket launches, like literally <laughs> just launch things into space from the Atlas V twice. You could buy three reused Falcon 9 launches. Um, you know, previously owned. Those are the cheaper ones. Yeah. You could, which, which you know, you, you might not want to put people on. I get the point that human rated is different, but sure. you could probably buy a whole Falcon Heavy launch. Um, or you could use one of the Raptor engines that SpaceX is building for Super Heavy and Starship. Those are more powerful than the RS-25 and uh, designed for dozens of reuses. And Elon Musk says they cost less than a million dollars each. <laughs> so I guess you could buy 146 of those. For that, for the price of one spatial main engine. Oh, it hurts, Jason. And Eric Berger at ours, you read the story, it's it's great. And his last paragraph is the best because he basically says, um, well, why does this happen? And he said, it's right there on the page, on the official SLS page of and in the press release for this procurement from NASA, which is the space launch system is being supported by people in all 50 states, which mm-hmm. we've talked about here before. It is uh, politics, and everybody's got a piece of it, and there's NASA money flowing into everybody's congressional districts. And while I am rooting for the space program in general, every story about the SLS is like this. It takes forever. It costs a fortune. It doesn't really make any sense, but it's happening because reasons. Yeah, it's it's sort of a bulletproof project from the political standpoint because you're going to upset congress people from a bunch of different states if you hand this big contract to someone like like spacex right because I, they're not employing people in 50 states and those congress people want those money and those jobs in their districts which is right totally understandable that's part of their job as congress people right is to look after their areas of the country but you get projects like this and it yeah. is just th- think ridiculous. about if this money was spent toward some other program to put humans in space with a heavy lifting vehicle um instead of what it has been used for and you know and i feel for people who are working on the sls i mean it's not their fault they're they're doing their jobs um this is like a bigger a bigger picture issue um i would look at this also and say this is why things like commercial crew exist and commercial space flight is being encouraged because um this is kind of proving the point that these vast government projects end up being um expensive and late but it's just it's just really hard to to watch it and and in the story Berger refers to the rs-25s as the ferrari of rocket engines and it's it's, it's a pretty good analogy right they're, they're awesome um and now imagine that you commuted to work uh which is hard for all of us because we're not going most of us are not going to work right now uh in a ferrari and then imagine when you got to the end of it you just drove it into the water <laughs> And got a new Ferrari to drive home because that's what's going on with the space shuttle main engine. It's just a new Ferrari every every uh, day, every half day. That's that's what they're doing. You know, we talk about the conversation of how expensive it is to to launch one of these things, right? This is how it adds up when you're paying this much for a single component. It, it adds up quickly. You know, there have been lots of comparisons looking at well, what is going to take to launch an LS versus a Falcon Heavy, you mentioned some of the some of those launches here. It is just so much more expensive, and they're so bent on doing it that the taxpayer and the agency just got to do it. 
let's uh let's let's segue into something that's a little more happy that does involve actually kind of some commercial projects and more more government money being spent but kind of in interesting ways sls and orion the human rated capsule that will go on top of sls is a part of this story but there's a whole lot more here and it's about the artemis lunar landers because in the last couple of weeks nasa has made a big announcement about um not selecting like what the lunar lander is going to be for the artemis program which is NASA's program to try and get uh, uh, a couple of people on the moon by 2024 and then have an extended stay on the moon over many years after that, not just one. It's like to go to the moon and stay is the long-term goal of this program. They instead are doing something that we've talked about in some other things, other kind of procurement systems that NASA does where they've given money to a few different teams to continue working on their proposals for lunar landers. So there are three different teams that have been given money to work on designs for lunar landers in the next 10 months. But uh, it's not the case that NASA is saying we're going to buy three lunar landers or anything like that. They don't want these three teams to continue their work. They're going to pay them. It is possible, though, that they won't just pick a winner that you might end up seeing. And I have a theory that we'll get into here that NASA is kind of trying to think about the short term of what gets us there fastest uh, because they want to hit that 2024 date and also kind of a longer term. What's the best, most sustainable over the you know long term of moon exploration and that they might end up picking and choosing so you might end up with a lunar lander in the short term and then another lunar lander system in the in the longer term but we'll have to see there might just be one winner but it might i think they're placing some bets yeah i think so too i mean you at this early stage and with a deadline that's so close kind of makes the most sense to treat things this way. You know, they're, they're continuing right. to make changes to try to hit the hit the target. We're not even really talking about, but there was a report out that they're basically saying we're, n- we're not going to use the uh, uh, cislunar uh, gateway, you know, right. whatever it's called today. Uh, the, lunar yeah. gateway is sort of out of the picture all of a sudden. Like, it's continuing to change because 2024 is catching up. So I think right. your like ideas... Ga- gateway, they, they're still talking about gateway existing, but it's not going to exist for 2024. Or right. it might, but it isn't necessary. Like there, there's still some talk like they might launch it by then, but they, they are not going to bet on it being there. They're not going to assume it'll be there. So who knows? So yeah, I like your theory. I'm on board with that. Yeah. So let's let's go through them. Um, the first one is the one that gets the most money. We're kind of going in descending order of how much money they got from NASA for okay. the next 10 months. And that's Blue Origin. So Jeff Bezos's company, Blue Origin, which is actually the leader of a group of big companies called the National Team. Oh, come on. You're playing. You're playing right into the yeah. the the uh, team team red white and blue USA. <laughs> uh, they're gonna they're gonna get a five hundred and seventy nine million dollars, so more than half a billion dollars. This team includes not only Blue Origin but uh, but Draper, which is a, a big contractor that's gonna work on avionics and stuff. Lockheed mm-hmm. Martin and Northrop Grumman, two very familiar aerospace names. I guess it's four very familiar <laughs> aerospace names and two companies. And they're building something called the Integrated Lander Vehicle. It's a three-stage lander. Um, it would launch on something that's basically based on the um, the Blue Origin. Uh, so 
let me back up. Let, let's talk about how it gets into space. Okay. Uh, it, its access to space is the Blue Origin New Glenn rocket, which they're working on, which is their orbital rocket. It hasn't launched yet. Or um, United Launch Alliance's Vulcan launch system. So the idea here is it's got a couple of different ways that it can get up there. And it's using the Blue Moon concept that, if you remember Jeff Bezos standing on stage and he had a, like, a lunar lander, giant lunar lander behind him and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the descent module. So that's the thing that lands on the moon. Um, and Blue Origin would build that, but Lockheed Martin would actually build the ascent module, which is above it, which would have the astronauts in it. And then Northrop is going to, Northrop Grumman's going to build a, a transfer stage, which is going to connect to either Gateway or to the Orion capsule with the astronauts in it. So if you think about it, this is very similar to the way Apollo is uh, Apollo was designed, where there's a landing stage, an ascent stage, and like a connector mm-hmm. to, instead of the command service module, a connector to Orion, which right. is the the uh, SLS will have launched, theoretically, Orion and the astronauts to lunar orbit. Um, so that's that's what Blue Origin's planning is. Blue Moon with a an ascent stage on top of it, and then a connector on top of that. Yeah, and all of these designs follow that concept of SLS launches Orion with the crew and some commercial rocket launches the the lander and then right. they, For, they got up, a rendezvous. Up, right. Up to now, NASA is saying that the only human rated uh, way to get to the moon is going to be SLS with Orion. So if you if you build any of these, no matter what you use to launch it, they're not planning on having this kind of launch to Earth orbit and then rendezvous with with astronauts and then put them on it. The idea here is they're going to launch these things to the moon. They're going to launch the astronauts to the moon in Orion, and then they'll rendezvous and go down to the surface. That's the current plan. We'll see how that we'll see how that goes. Okay. Um, Dynetics. Uh, who you've probably never heard of, but they they have a group of more than 25 subcontractors. Sierra Nevada, which makes the Dream Chaser, which we've talked about, it's a little sort of space shuttle mini kind of thing, is one of the partners in this plan. They're going to get $253 million uh, to investigate over the next 10 months. Their plan, which is a single module... It looks really interesting. It's going to launch from the Vulcan, the ULA Vulcan rocket is how it gets to the moon. Um, it's much lower to the surface than the, the, if you can remember what Blue Moon looks like, it's like a giant limb. It's got like big legs and, and this huge thing. It's way up. And then there's going to be the human module would be above that, the the ascent module. This thing is kind of like uh, like a camper or something on the moon. <laughs> it's like low down with uh, with tanks mounted on the sides and the engines off of those tanks. And, and then it's got these tall, like almost like bunny ears that come off of it that I think are solar panels. But um, it's a it's a uh, very different kind of design and it's a single module. There's no, it, it, it comes down and lands. And then when it's done, you get back in and it, it goes back up at mm-hmm. rendezvous. It doesn't leave, you know, its bottom half behind. It's a It's a lunar camper. You take it to the woods and then you come home. Yeah, it's kind of yeah, it's kind of like a camper van actually, right? It's like it looks a little bit like that. It's it very does. horizontal. Yeah, and, and we should say we haven't spoken much about the Vulcan rocket. That is also in development. So we're talking about right. It's not yeah. None of these rockets actually exist. Yeah, yet. they're all uh, ULA is, is aiming for a summer twenty twenty one launch. Uh, for their first right. customer launch with Vulcan. So it's it's a little ways off as well. Yeah, and I don't know when New Glenn is planning on testing, but I, I think it's a similar kind of time frame where Blue Origin's been working on that and talking about having an orbital rocket and they just haven't done it yet. Yeah. So the third one is SpaceX, which people were... <laughs> There were rumors that SpaceX bid on this, but SpaceX said nothing about it. And nobody really had any details, and people were wondering, what is SpaceX actually doing? And SpaceX is only getting $135 million, so a lot less than the other two. But 
Um, what NASA is doing here is fascinating to me. This is for Starship, uh, which is the system that they're currently testing in Texas, the one that looks like a big sci-fi from the 50s rocket ship kind mm-hmm. of thing. And the idea here is they would launch Starship um, on Falcon Super Heavy to orbit. They would launch two more Starships. And those two starships would refuel the starship that's going to the moon. So you need three starship launches for this. And then the the starship that's going to the moon would go translunar injection, go to the moon, land on the moon, the whole thing, let the people out, yeah, and run and around. A, and a little lunar elevator in the, in little, the image. Little, like window, wa- window washer thing that yeah. comes down because it's really <laughs> high. It's, it's like the whole thing has to come down. And then the whole thing takes back off and comes back to Earth, um, presumably, or it takes back off. And in this case, uh, it takes back off and then rendezvous with Orion and then Orion takes them back to Earth again. I look at this and I think it's fascinating. It makes you wonder, like, why is Orion involved at all at this point? Um, but I mean, we can speculate. I've got a a section. We'll talk about like our speculation about these three, these three things later, but it's fascinating that they did give SpaceX money and said, basically, yeah, investigate Starship as a way to the moon. Do it. Um, a little bit of a bet there. Now, Boeing, (laughs) Boeing's had had a really rough couple of years right no no airplanes are really flying right now they had the whole thing with the uh with a 737 max um they've had issues with their commercial crew vehicle they have to retest it um they also submitted a proposal for this and uh it was not funded (laughs) so forget that um uh it is fascinating that none of these things use SLS in any way. Like basically the message here is don't count on SLS for anything, but the human spaceflight part of it. All of them, the concept is Orion launches people to the moon, they rendezvous and then they go down. It, it makes me once again, ask about SLS, which also hasn't launched, but is supposed to be rated for human spaceflight in a way that these aren't. Mm-hmm. But I start to think, I start to think about, and this goes for a long time, right? It's just like, well, what, Orion and how much better? I know Orion is longer duration than something like, like um, the Crew Dragon, sure. But, but at some point, like if we've got a human-rated rocket that will take you up there, and then you know it's not powerful enough to get to you to the moon. I, I get it, but like none of these rockets are. None of them are human-rated. It's just it, SLS is a very expensive way to get a handful of people into lunar orbit in an Orion capsule. But that's sort of where the the plan is right now in, in absence of something like um, Falcon Super Heavy getting human rated and just launching direct on Starship, which is I'm sure what Elon Musk wants. But of course, so let's, let's talk about um, what we think about these. Um, uh, I want to start with SpaceX since we were, we've been talking about it. To me, this feels like a bet that NASA is doing like a wild card for the long term, which is mm-hmm. what if it works? I, I really feel like the 135 million is uh, what if it works? What if what if Elon Musk's bet with Starship works and they are able to launch people in that rocket on Falcon Super Heavy and they can go to the moon or maybe to Mars and yeah, you got to refuel it when you get it to orbit, but what if it works? Then we reuse, we can reuse those. We can take them out to Gateway. We could take them down to the surface. Like, worth throwing them some money just in case it happens. I can't envision that even remotely being ready for a 2024 landing, but like I see what they're doing there in terms of just saying, we think you're going in an interesting direction. 
Um, and so good, like keep it, keep it up. This is interesting to us. And, and more like, I mean, it's, it is $135 million. That's nice. But it's also, I feel like sending a message, just, um, you, your, your plans intrigue us and we would like to subscribe to your newsletter. That's what's going on. <laughs> I think there. Yeah, I agree. And I think out of, out of these companies, I think SpaceX and Blue Origin would be the ones to, to try this on their own anyways. Not so sure about the the Dynetics group. Yeah, but long-term, I I see what they're doing, right? It's it's got a lot of long-term promise, so keep it around. Look, SpaceX is really good at timelines, so I'm sure it'll (laughs) just happen. Um, So is the SLS, so, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, Dynetics. This one looks interesting to me. I, I don't know a lot about them. What I like about this is it's the single module design. It suggests something that NASA has talked about, which is in the long run, what they would like to do is have Gateway, which is like a little mini ISS, uh, maybe even, you know, multiple modules on Gateway. And people can be in Gateway in lunar orbit. And then you go down from there using a craft. This looks like a good option for that in the long run because it's a single stage and I think it's meant to be reusable. So you you bring it up from the moon, you refuel it, you take it back down, you bring it back up, you refuel it, you take it back down. If you can if you can run multiple missions on that thing, that's really great. Again, in the long term, I don't know about as a short term option, but th- to me, this sounds like what NASA's kind of ultimate vision for the moon is hmm. is being able to shuttle people up and down from. Uh, from a lunar gateway station and that that's what this seems to be yeah i think you're right this feels like it would take the least adaptation if the lunar gateway idea comes to light in the future yeah and 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 it's the idea that it may be reusable um and you're not leaving things behind is Mm -hmm. is um i think that's where everything is going i mean we talked about the space shuttle main engines earlier right it's just it feels like uh making things reusable means that they cost a lot less. Like imagine if you build a, uh, a lunar lander using this Dynetics uh, platform and it's, uh, wow, it's almost, it's almost Dianetics. It's not, it's really not. Um, the, uh, if, if it costs even like half again as much uh, as another option, but you can, uh, you can use it five times. Like, right. That it's huge. That's huge. If you can reuse this thing, so I'm fascinated by that. Um, and it and it's a it's a space camper. So yeah, moon camper, moon camper. Well, yeah. I mean, you you've got the reduced cost. You've got the reduced risk. I mean, it, all these things that require multiple launches. It's right. exponential number of things that can go wrong. Right. And and in terms of the launches to the space station, if you're launching one of these on a on a big rocket to the space to to uh, the gateway and it stays there. Um, then, then your costs are sending up uh, fuel and sending up astronauts on Orion. But that's it. That's that's mm-hmm. you've got the lander sitting there. That's yeah. good. It is. Um, Blue Origin. Okay, so Blue Origin. I said, um, it's very Apollo-like. It feels like Apollo Part Two to me. Definitely. Um, that's their, that it's how it's designed. That's their inspiration. It's way bigger than Apollo. There's, it can carry a lot more. Like it's not just a replay of Apollo, but it's coming from that same 
idea. The contractors are familiar names who were involved in Apollo way back when and are big aerospace players even now. And I look at this and I think this is what they're thinking for 2024. That this is this is the way you get there is we're going to build this part. You guys built this part. You guys, guys built this part. NASA's doing Orion. Put those parts together. We've got a way to the moon in 2024. And um, I look at this and I think this is a terrible long-term proposition for moon exploration because every time you go down, as with Apollo, you're leaving that whole bottom part just sitting on the moon. So you bring send people down again, then there's another one down there, and you just kind of keep littering the moon with these things. You can't bring them back. It seems wasteful and expensive, but it'll get you there potentially much faster. Mm-hmm. And so I look at... I look at Dynetics and I think that seems to be what you guys want to do in the future. And I look at Blue Origin and go, oh, this is your hope of getting there in 2024. And that's why they have the most money. Right. And it it can dock with either Orion or Gateway. So they have that flexibility. And they have flexibility in terms of launch vehicle, either between Blue Origin or the ULA Vulcan platform. So if one of those launch vehicles doesn't materialize, I mean, that can happen to SpaceX, right? Starship could be ready. But the rocket couldn't be. And, sure. and Blue Origin has flexibility built into their platform. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I agree with you. If I were to put a bet on what happens first, I think this is the closest thing uh, that we'll see for those first missions. Yeah. So uh, we'll see in 10 months sort of how NASA's feeling about all of these. But I I look at this and my, my gut feeling is SpaceX is a is a kind of a wild bet on a long-term future where if they can make this and they can make it work and they can rate it for human spaceflight, SpaceX can just take Starship directly to the moon. It'll also lift and carry a whole lot of cargo. So that's another thing is that it's not just about the humans going to the moon, but it's possible that you could use something like Starship to carry a lot of material to the lunar surface if you wanted to build a moon base or something like that um, and then roam around on your space golf cart. A moon golf cart, sorry. Moon golf cart. It's totally different from a space golf cart. Um, <laughs> you don't need tires for that. Yeah. And um, and and so you place that bad Dynetics, I feel like they're intrigued about the long-term possibility of something like that shuttling up and down. And Blue Origin is their, is their most sort of familiar uh, set of, of uh, contractors. And it, it's uh, a familiar design. And, you know, Blue Origin's already been designing Blue Moon. Mm-hmm. So, like, this is already kind of in in action. And this is one of the missing pieces, because as much as we talk about SLS and, and Orion, uh, all this Artemis stuff has come back to how do we get them down to the moon? How does that happen? What's the lander? And there's been nothing about it. And now, at least, we've got a little more clarity. And I would be, uh, I would actually kind of be surprised if in a year... Uh, the Blue Origin plan is not NASA's plan for Artemis. Agreed. And it will be weird because it will be like a replay of Apollo, but on a much larger scale and with a whole lot of modern advantages and and it can carry more stuff down and all of that. But still, it's going to be kind of familiar. I I just wonder about the long term. And my my concern here is if you fund Blue Origin, what happens... um, to the long run like if you if you put a lot of money into this not very reusable approach i mean i suppose the um 
ascent module could be potentially reused, but you'd need to send more descent modules out there. Still, I, w- I wonder about that. Like, what you really want to see is that funded in the short term, but something more like the Dynetics thing funded for the long term, um, along with Gateway, in order to create a more sustainable presence in lunar orbit instead of it being a replay of Apollo where you go there five times and then you, you know, never go back. Hmm. It's nice to be talking about it, though. It's it's nice to have that big like cloud with the question mark of the lunar lander filled in a little bit. Like, okay, we got some ideas. This is what it's probably going to be. Is one of these twenty twenty four? We're going to make it. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Optimism. No idea. Uh, all right, let's take a break, and then we're going to talk about Hubble. How does that sound? Yeah. Hubble at 30. We're going to, that's the rest of our show is all about the Hubble Space Telescope. But before that, there is a, a different kind of space, a square sort of space to talk Squarespace. about. Squarespace. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace, the all in one web platform that is totally the way to go to create a website for your next idea, project, company, whatever it is. Because anything you need in a website, Squarespace can offer. It's got a great online store. You can build a portfolio, host a blog or a podcast, and you get not just an awesome looking website, but you get a unique domain name and you get a bunch of award-winning templates that are really easy to choose from and work with. And it's an all-in-one platform, so you don't have to worry about software updates or server reboots in the middle of the night. You just don't have to worry about that kind of stuff because Squarespace has got it covered. If you have any uh, questions and you need any help, they have award-winning 24-7 customer support that you easily and quickly grab a unique domain name, and all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. I generally talk about sites that I'm building for people like on a freelance basis, and I'm working on right now on one right now for a food mission. And for them, the, the number one thing was it, it needs to be easy to get people to our donate page, right? Because they're trying to raise funds to keep their food mission open. That's been really easy to do with Squarespace, and it gives me a lot of flexibility on where I can send people and what I need to do. Uh, it's really been great, and when it's up and running, I think they're going to see a lot of success with it. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com liftoff. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for the show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Hubble, Hubble at 30. We touched on this uh, our last episode, but we're going to kind of dive in today. And in reading about this, uh, I kind of went down a rabbit hole of you know, the idea of space telescopes in general, right? It's easy to sort of understand the benefits, right? You're up above Earth's atmosphere, so you have a better view. You're away from the uh, the interference if you're looking at infrared or other parts of the spectrum that are really difficult to do from the ground. You're uh, away from all of that stuff. And those ideas go back to like as far as the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, in fact, in the 40s, uh, Lyman Spitzer, the name should sound familiar, uh, has a, a, a space telescope uh, that bears their name, uh, wrote about the advantages of this. And in the early 60s, Spitzer was appointed by the U.S. National Academy of Sciences to run a committee to determine 
Hey, what sort of objectives should be considered when designing a telescope that would work from orbit? So in the 60s, NASA launched the Orbiting Solar Observatory. Observatory? I'm going to do that again. So in the 60s, uh, NASA did launch the Orbiting Solar Observatory, OSO. Maybe it was bear-like. Bear-like. To obtain UV, X-ray, and gamma-ray spectra. First of nearly a dozen OSO missions launching through 1975 and operating until 1989. So there were OSOs up there for uh, quite a while. So we have the the OSOs, which like thumbs up. It's a fun name to say. Really clear. Uh, there were also two orbiting astronomical observatory missions. Uh, the first one failed after three days, had battery issues, but later telescopes were successful. And again, this sort of launched uh, a line of, of missions exploring this area of, of science, what you could do up above the atmosphere. Um, also, Stephen, there were spy satellites. Shh. They can We've see talked us. about this in various uh, space shuttle things that the that there's a whole like spy satellite program. Um, those are essentially space telescopes, right? But they're pointed down at the Earth mm-hmm. instead of out into space. A lot of that tech ended up rolling up into later non-military telescope missions. The military would be like, "We don't need this anymore. You could launch it as a regular telescope." Yeah, and they're like, "Thanks, military." <laughs> Point it the other we'll way. Do that. <laughs> so uh, that 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 was also going on, and it's part of the history of space telescopes, even though we don't think about it because it's secret and it was pointed the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these projects and research led to plans for the Large Space Telescope, or LST. This was coming up in the late '60s, early '70s. I think about that time, and Apollo Apollo's budget was getting cut. This was affected by those cuts as well. In fact, funding was basically cut off by Congress in 1974. But uh, about half of the budget was reinstated after this loud outcry from the scientific community. So they lobbied Congress. They got basically half the money put back in the budget. This, of course, meant trade-offs. The telescope would be slightly smaller, but it opened the door for ESA to become a partner in the project. Yeah. So you don't know about the LST. You've never heard about LST. That's because they renamed it. (laughs) They call it Hubble after Edwin Hubble, who... um, it did a lot. I mean, the Hubble constant we talk about, which is the rate of expansion of the universe, a very influential astronomer, uh, laid a lot of the foundation of modern astronomy. And so they decided to honor Edwin Hubble. And it was no longer a, well, it was a large space telescope, but it was no longer the large space telescope. It was the Hubble Space Telescope instead. Uh, we got to talk about the space shuttle here because the fact is the Hubble story is also the space shuttle story. The Hubble was set to launch. In October of 1986, but in January of that year, the Challenger accident happened and it had to be set aside. It spent uh, the next few years in a clean room <laughs> with uh, like like helium pumped into it and stuff in order to keep it fresh. Although um, the extra time, the, the ground software to control it wasn't done and they spent several more years on that. So that it was kind of like a blessing to those people who would totally miss their deadline. And they're like, okay, we got more time now. Um, they There was a battery that they were suspicious of that they thought might be bad. So they swapped that out. They did some more tests. Um, finally, it launched in April 1990. So almost four years later on the Space Shuttle Discovery, that was STS-31. Yeah. So they used the, uh, the shuttle as a pickup truck, get it up there, put it in orbit from the bay of the shuttle. Yeah, the whole idea is it fits in the shuttle's main bay, so the shuttle can sh- shuttle it up there and release it and then bring it back and service it, which we'll, which we'll talk about. 
So Hubble features a 7.9-foot main mirror. Uh, it's able to observe in ultraviolet, visible, and near-infrared lights. So light streams in, hitting the large mirror at the back of the telescope, is then reflected to a smaller secondary mirror that focuses the light into separate instruments at the base of the observatory. The whole thing has got large solar panels, and like you mentioned, there's a set of batteries that are relied on when it is out of sunlight. Now, the bad news, which is despite sitting for three and a half years and then running tests on it, there was one thing that they didn't find. Or in fact, some of the tests did find, but they thought it wasn't going to be a problem. Uh, the primary mi- mirror was uh, was was wrong. When, they, when it became operational in 1990, the images that it was sending back were fuzzy, like they were out of focus. It didn't make sense. So they did an investigation and they discovered that during the grinding of the mirror of of the Hubble, a tool had been assembled incorrectly, and it was a tool for precise measurement. So the mirror was slightly out of spec. NASA didn't catch it in the quality control. And just so that we're clear here, this was not a big error in terms of the size of it. It's about 1 50th the thickness of a sheet of paper out of... Uh, out of the proper orientation. This aberration was very tiny, but it was enough to mean that Hubble's images were not clear. It's not something that you were going to walk in the the room and notice. <laughs> you know, it, it was something that had to be measured with all of these instruments, a very complicated process. And in that process, it, it failed, right? They yeah. had this issue... And this was a big deal at the time. You were you were a baby at the time, but let me tell you, this was a big deal because they'd spent so much money and so much time, and they finally got it up there after all these delays, and they flipped it on, and the images were fuzzy. And it was really embarrassing to NASA and to everyone involved. It was frustrating because they had spent a huge amount of money on this project and for a telescope that couldn't see straight. It was really kind of scandalous. But the good news is Hubble was designed not just to be launched by the space shuttle, but to be repaired by astronauts using the space shuttle. So back on Earth, when they discovered this aberration, they looked at uh, a bunch of tests from the ground and they looked at what they could see in orbit and they figured out exactly what was wrong and what the aberration was. And then they built a bunch of different instruments to cancel out the aberration. Right. You can't go up there and grind the mirror down. In space, no. right? So and they you had have... enough, they had a backup mirror, but they could, and they, that was that was right, but they couldn't take it up. You'd need to take the the Hubble down, unload mm-hmm. it, put the new mirror in, take it back up. They weren't going to do that, so you had to you had to fix it on orbit. That's right. So the way you fix it is you you build new instruments that correct for the the problem. You're basically like a, con- if, like a contact lens, basically. Exactly. Yep. I see. Exactly. Um, this uh, this started in the form of the Corrective Optics Space Telescope Axial Replacement, or COSTAR. COSTAR. Very good. <laughs> Great acronym, COSTAR. Yeah. Very good. So this was a centralized instrument. They take one of the instruments out and put this one in, and it was a $50 million piece of hardware. And so it corrected the light before it went into Hubble's other instruments. So it's kind of a centralized fix and it was installed yeah. in 1993 on the first Hubble servicing mission so 3 years to get this figured out yeah designed built launched and in place yeah three painful years now um 
again, you were really young when this was going on. I, uh, 93, just gotten out of college and was in grad school. And I remember very clearly watching the Hubble servicing missions on TV. For mm-hmm. those people who don't know, um, Ted Turner was the owner of CNN in that era. Um, he was a space nut. And so CNN covered space and covered it really, really well. So um, they would just show these missions live. If you ever watch NASA TV for the ISS spacewalks, and it's just lots of silence and lots of very slow-moving astronauts, and you think, this is interesting, but it's also incredibly boring, CNN would just be that for hours hmm. and hours. Just just that. Because Ted Turner said, put the space stuff on. It's good. People should watch the space stuff. So they were they were kind of amazing. They were kind of like ISS spacewalks, but more intense. Um, these servicing missions, all seven astronauts were trained in all sorts of things about the space telescope, because even if they didn't do a spacewalk, they had to uh, help manipulate things with the robot arm, and they had to talk to their, their uh, people, and it was just, it was all about repairing the telescope. That whole mission was focused on that. So the first one was STS-61, that was Space Shuttle Endeavor in December of 1993. They did five separate spacewalks with two separate teams, two separate pairs of spacewalkers over the course of five days, and among the things they did then was install uh, CoStar, and um, another funny thing is that they um, they were already building a replacement. It had been delayed so long that they were already replacing on the ground one of the main cameras on the Hubble with a new version, the Wide Field Planetary Camera 2. And so they built that with the correction already in place. And that went up on another servicing mission uh, because it had been so long that they were already planning the upgrades for the things that had been delayed and that were installed in it. So by making it a modular device that could be serviced by people uh, via the space shuttle, they ended up essentially saving Hubble and making it what we know it as instead of being kind of a joke. It's it's an incredible testament to how flexible the shuttle could be, being able to travel yeah. this thing, bring it into its bay fix it, upgrade it multiple times, and then re-release it. I mean, we talk about the James Webb. There's, there ain't no options for the James Webb, right? Where it's going to be, we don't have a spacecraft to get there. But the shuttle saved Hubble, and it really extended its life in, in many, many ways. One of the nice things about doing these service missions is when, when you take the old instruments out, you don't just let them float away. You put them in the shuttle bay. So... By 2002, like with the wide, field, the wide field planetary camera, by 2002, all the instruments on Hubble were upgraded in these service missions to include their own compensation optics for the main mirror aberration. So they took CoStar out. And although Hubble is up there and is not coming back, you can actually see CoStar. It's at the National Air and Space Museum. You can actually see the contact lens for Hubble. And uh, in total, there were five uh, Hubble servicing missions it's the only space telescope to be repaired and upgraded in orbit. Of course, it's so modular. Um, and uh, yeah, they would just fly up there and grab it with a robot arm and then work on it and then release it. And it, they did it. They did it five times. It was uh, it was great television. Again, you were a little too young for it. But even though it was endless, God, as a space fan, I loved watching that stuff. And it was it was more dramatic because they were like maneuvering around the bay and they're getting all their stuff out and they're pulling things in and out. And you could just sit there and watch it for hours. And I did. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of the video and it's on YouTube and are archived online. And even now it, it feels so futuristic. You just go pluck this thing out of orbit and fix it. Like it's like, it's, you know, it's amazing. 
every instrument got updated over the course of all the servicing missions. Um, on the final flight, they put in new batteries because they knew it would be the last one. Um, and we should probably talk about that final flight because it's kind of unique. So that was that was the fifth the service mission. It was called Service Mission 4. Oh, space people. There mm-hmm. was a Mission 3A and a Mission 3B. Anyway, this was the fifth one. It was called Number 4. It was supposed to happen in February of 2005. Um, the Columbia accident in 2003 led to a real rethinking of the shuttle program. Eventually, it led to its shutdown. And um, the problem with having the Hubble servicing mission in the post-Columbia era is that they introduced all these new safety rules involving astronauts on the International Space Station looking for damage on the shuttle. They would, like, flip the shuttle over. And then, Mm -hmm. like, the ISS, they would take pictures uh, in case there was damage to the shuttle. And then if there was a problem with the shuttle, they could just stay on the ISS and either fix the shuttle or they could come home on, on some other spacecraft. And the reason the shuttle kept flying after Columbia was primarily because the U.S. had all of these commitments to build things for the ISS and shuttle them up there. And they were built to go up in the space shuttle. So they like right. couldn't go up in some other way. And they had to be assembled from the space shuttle. So they brought all of those back. But there was this one remaining shuttle mission that was not an ISS mission, and it was HSM-4, the last Hubble Services mission. And so the administrator, Sean O'Keefe, George Bush's first NASA administrator, canceled the mission. He said, we just can't do it. It's mm-hmm. not safe. We can't do it. And there was a there was public outcry. I mean, this, is, this is much later. This is the early 2000s, so you remember this. There were people that were like, Hubble's so valuable. We love it. We love the pictures from it. The public was into it. The scientists were upset about the idea of canceling it. Um, I... As I recall, astronauts were saying, we do it. Like, don't worry about us. We take risks anyway. If it's if we can figure this out, we'll do it. Congress people pushed NASA. And um, there ended up being a new NASA administrator, Michael Griffin. And he rever- reversed uh, O'Keefe's original order. And they scheduled STS-125 for May uh, 2009. And that was the last services mission. So 30 years of of history, right? So what what's next? Um the future's a little unknown. I mean, it should survive well into the 2020s, but without intervention, and there's at this point no plans or way to intervene, uh, its orbit will slowly decay over the coming decades. And without a shuttle to bring it home, it will burn up in the atmosphere uh, at, at some point in the next few decades. Yeah, it's got a, a little thing. One of the last things they installed is this like... um it's like a grapple kind of thing, mm-hmm. like so that you could in the future, the idea was maybe a robotic probe would attach to it and then it could de- do a deorbit burn and guide where it comes down. It's not possible. We talked about that that uh, um, satellite repair satellite that mm-hmm. will go and like boost a satellite. And there are a couple of those in development. It's, it's not impossible that something like that could be used to either deorbit it or even to raise it to another orbit and park it there. Um, there, there are some possibilities and there's been some talk about using a new spacecraft. At one point there was a theory about maybe the dream chaser that Sierra Nevada is building could be used for that. Um, some of it is in the context of what if we build something that could service Hubble and that could also potentially go out and service, uh, the James Webb space telescope, uh, some, some kind of robotic servicing craft, uh, Nothing has really come of it. It's just kind of talk, but it is it is out there as a possibility. But failing that, it's just going to um, decay its orbit and then burn up. Mm-hmm. 
And originally the plan was always uh, theoretically to retrieve it and take it back to Earth, although it sounds like there was a lot of skepticism that you'd do a whole shuttle mission just to bring back a bounty from space. But uh, it was a possibility that they would just bring it back down at the end. But there's no space shuttle anymore, so they can't do that. Uh, so let's talk some about its its mission highlights, which we cannot do it justice here. I mean, 30 years of history, and it's one of those things, like, well, we spoke about last time about exoplanets being found in the Kepler data. It will take years, maybe decades, to sort through all of the findings, all of the images that Hubble has taken. Mm-hmm. It has yielded 1.4 million observations to date. That has fueled like 17,000 peer-reviewed publications making it the most prolific space observatory in history. Sure. It's amazing. And yeah, it's 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 huge. I mean, what it's what it's seen is impossible to even summarize, right? Yeah, I mean, just looking through some of the things, what really ha- struck me was the the versatility of Hubble being able to be used in all sorts of different ways. So, it's imaged outer solar system objects it's uh remember in i remember this this is one of my first like space in the news memories when the shoemaker levy nine comet impacted jupiter in 94 right hubble made images of it i remember that like those images circulating in the in the mid 90s when i was in elementary school thing uh-huh. like wow that's amazing how do we get that well hubble's how we got it and i took the that pillars of creation picture which is stars forming in the eagle nebula which is one of the most famous astronomical photos ever taken uh thanks to hubble we have evidence that black holes are at the center of many galaxies that's a a a fairly common situation Uh uh the auras at the south pole of saturn it's captured supernovas including the first one ever predicted by scientists so looking at data over time predicting when we would see one yeah, they got the little red flag saying, I think this one is blowing. And they're like, quick, get the Hubble to look at it. And they got to see it, which is cool. It is really cool. It's been used on the hunt for exoplanets, finding some of the very first ones. Uh, it's been used to measure the size of the Milky Way galaxy. And again, some of those most iconic photographs of the last 30 years have come from Hubble, like you said. Yeah. And of course, it can see, true to its namesake, it can see back in time measuring the age of the universe some 480 million years. It's really a remarkable career for this. And it sounds like we are, you know, doing its eulogy, but it's still kicking. It's going to it's gonna be going into, the, you know, into this decade. We don't know how long, but it's still kicking. And, um, you know, when we talk about the James Webb Space Telescope, it's worth remembering that uh, Hubble was also really expensive and really delayed. <laughs> And in the end, had some issues, but were resolved by very clever people, and it became incredibly important. We can only hope that the James Webb Space Telescope will be similarly successful and useful once it finally gets up there in, you know, a year or two. It has real big shoes to fill, that's for sure. It does. It does. I think that does it. Yeah, I think so. Um, Don't pour one out for Hubble. It's fine. It's Hubble's fine. Still going. We're just celebrating it's, a birthday. But it's awesome. Thirty. Happy. Don't trust any space telescope over thirty. I guess, or something like that. If you want to find links to the stories we spoke about, head on over to the website. Uh, this week, the episode will be found at relay.fm/liftoff/one23. That's an easy one to remember. One two three. One two three. If you have uh, questions, feedback, or follow-up, you can send us an email from that page. You can also sign up to become a member to support Liftoff directly. 
You can find us on Twitter. Jason is there as Snell, And you can find me on Twitter as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.